The Jodcast. Gotta listen to them all. With Megan Argo, James Bamber, Minnie Mao, Haritina Mogashanu, Ian Morrison, Max Potter, and Benjamin Shaw. The Jodcast, August 2016 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Max and with me in the studio are Ben and James. Hello. Hi. Hello. Ben's sounding a bit downbeat there because he's had a bit <laughs> of a bit of a disaster in the last 24 hours. I've had a real mer- I've had a really rubbish few weeks actually. I've broken my arm and that's not good. Never ideal. That's never ideal. No. Um but I'm getting this plaster taken off on Friday as we record. Um so soon I'll be free from my plastery prison. Um <laughs> And last night my laptop quite literally exploded. Um, literally? Was, yeah, there was a pop, there was smoke. Um, and I've got an oil burner on my coffee table in my living room and I thought, oh, that's, that smells just... You know, <laughs> the, the oil burner's run dry, so I didn't do anything about it and just carried on typing. And then more smoke started issuing from the back of my laptop. And then there was a bang. Um, <laughs> so I took my battery out because I thought I'm going to be picking bits of battery out of my face for the next year and a half if I don't. Yeah. Um, and then the whole thing just died. And what happened was a little wire that connects the motherboard to the monitor just burnt out completely. Fortunately, my hard drive is safe, so all my data is okay. Oh, I'd backed up literally 15 minutes before that happened. Right. So I was both laughing and crying. Um, so not to every PhD student listening, back up, back up, do yeah. it now, immediately back up, because you don't know what's coming. <laughs> so, Yeah. God, the Jodcast's had terrible luck with technology over the last few months. Yeah, we've had servers <laughs> die, we've had interviews get accidentally deleted, we've had war, disease, pestilence. <laughs> <laughs> could it yeah. be that we're being haunted? Possibly. It could oh. just be me, I'm a curse, I am where computers go to die. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's on the up, because on Friday my arm will be free from this cast. And Fiona was very amused when, she, well, she called it the Jodcast. Oh, oh, genius. I know, I know, grown. So I'm surprised you haven't written just Jod on it somewhere. I'm not going to lower myself to that extent. <laughs> I'm surprised you've not gone around the office getting people to sign it. I may well do shortly before I get taken off, but you, you, you can't really control what people are going to write on it, and it could be something I don't really want to carry around with me. Yeah, you don't so. want to be sat on the bus with... Quite, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I've, yeah, got to exactly. I've got to, you know, reserve any sort of editorial rights to my cast <laughs> until the very last minute. We so. could maybe leave, like, a moving tribute to your laptop somewhere on, on the cast. So, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, rest in peace, Ben's laptop. Um, <laughs> in the show this time, Minnie interviews Dr Betsy Mills about her ALMA observations of the centre of the Milky Way. Ian Morrison and Haritina Mogashanu take a look at what's happening in the August night sky, and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, Here's Megan with this month's news. In the news this month, planets found orbiting surprisingly young stars, and the origin of the moon's Imbrium sculpture. Understanding how our solar system came to be the way we see it today is not simple. A surprisingly large fraction of the exoplanet systems discovered so far consist of massive planets orbiting very close to their host stars, known as hot Jupiters. Very few systems are known to have large planets as far from their star as Jupiter and Saturn are from our own Sun. Part of the reason for this could be selection bias. Massive planets in orbits close to their parent stars are easiest to detect. Models of star formation suggest that forming giant planets close to the star is unlikely, and that the large number of such planetary systems discovered is evidence that planets migrate over the lifetime of the star, forming in the colder, outer regions of the stellar nebula, and moving inwards over time. 
The question remains whether these large planets migrate inwards in the early stages, while the star and its associated planets are still embedded within the protoplanetary disk, or later, once multiple planets have formed. Now, two new studies, both published in Nature during July, show evidence for early planetary migration. The first study, led by Jean-François Donati in Toulouse, shows a hot Jupiter orbiting a still-forming two-million-year-old solar-mass star. Very few exoplanets have, so far, been detected around this type of star, so discovering one can tell us a lot about the early stages of evolution within a planetary system. Using sensitive instruments on telescopes in both France and Hawaii, and tomographic techniques inspired by medical imaging, the team confirmed that the star, known as V830 Tau, is spinning on its axis every 2.741 days, ten times faster than our own Sun, and found a longer periodic signal indicating the presence of an orbiting planet. By carefully analysing the data, the team were able to rule out other explanations for the periodic signal, and conclude that it is caused by a large gas-giant planet orbiting V830 Tau every 4.93 days, at a distance of just over 8.5 million kilometres, with a mass three-quarters that of Jupiter. The near-circular nature of the orbit of this planet strongly favours the disk migration model of massive planets, since migration by planetary interactions produces much more eccentric, non-circular planetary orbits. The second paper shows a fully formed gas giant planet in a close orbit around a star less than 10 million years old. While the previous example was discovered by looking at the spectrum of the host star, this planet, with a size 50% larger than Neptune, was found through the transit technique, where the planetary orbit aligns with our line of sight, blocking out some of the light from the star each time it orbits. The star, known as K233, was detected and found to be a candidate planet host by the Kepler Space Telescope. A team of astronomers led by Trevor David at the California Institute of Technology report the independent detection and confirmation of this fully formed Neptune-class planet, orbiting its host star every 5.4 days, at a distance of only 8 stellar radii. This star and its associated planet are located in a star-forming region known as the Upper Scorpius OB Association, where only about 20% of low-mass stars host protoplanetary disks, suggesting that planet formation is at an advanced stage. The host star itself has a mass of less than a third of that of the Sun, and an age of between 5 and 10 million years. In this case, the existence of a Neptune-sized planet in close orbit around a star of this age shows that large planets can be found close to their parent stars, very soon after the pre-stellar nebula is dispersed. And the authors conclude that, although it is unclear exactly where in the protoplanetary disk the planet formed, the only likely explanations permitted by the observational results are that the planet formed at its current location, or that it formed further out, and migrated within the gas disk before it dispersed. The face of the Moon is today covered in the scars of many impacts from a bombardment of small rocky bodies when the solar system was much younger. Smaller impacts formed craters like Copernicus, Aristarchus and Tycho, some with large radial debris fields that stretch over significant regions of the Moon's surface. Larger impacts created the lunar mare, or seas, massive basins, often filled in later by lava flows, creating a flat, darker floor. One such larger impact feature is the mare Imbrium basin, on the northern part of the Moon's surface. However, Imbrium has several features that do not radiate from the centre of the Imbrium impact site, instead suggesting a more complex origin. Made up of rimmed grooves, lineations, and non-circular craters, this set of features is known as the Imbrium sculpture. Now two researchers have studied this region and determined a likely explanation for this set of features. Peter Schultz of Brown University and David Crawford of Sandia National Laboratories, both in the USA, combined laboratory experiments with numerical simulations in order to understand the creation of the features observed in the Imbrium sculpture, and the nature and trajectory of the impactor. 
What they found was that the grooves and lineations of the sculpture provide important clues about the excavation process. Firstly, they found that the initial impact and excavation of material occurred uprange of the basin centre, with debris ejected downrange at high speeds and low angles. Their experiments also show that chunks of rock from the impactor sheared off and travelled far downrange at speeds close to that of the original impactor, creating groove-like features far to the south of the rim of the Imbrian Basin. The researchers estimate that the impactor was approximately 250 kilometres in diameter, a protoplanet roughly half the size of the asteroid Vesta, impacting the lunar surface at an angle of 30 degrees and a velocity of 25 kilometres per second. The Imbrian Basin is among the largest of the impact basins created during the late heavy bombardment phase of the solar system's early history, between 4.1 and 3.7 billion years ago. These new calculations have implications for estimates of the mass in the asteroid belt prior to the depletion event caused by the migration of Jupiter and Saturn, and suggest that far more young asteroidal material may have intersected the lunar orbit than was previously thought. And finally, after an exciting couple of years, the Rosetta spacecraft stopped listening for signals from the Philae lander at the end of July. The pair reached the comet 67P Chiriomov gerasimenko together before the Philae lander separated and attempted a nail-biting landing on the surface of the comet on November 12, 2014. Despite achieving the first-ever comet landing, Philae's final position was not ideal, resulting in less power from its solar panels than needed to power its onboard instruments. Now, since no signals have been received from Philae since the 9th of July 2015, and to conserve power on the orbiting Rosetta spacecraft, ESA have switched off the Electrical Support System Processor Unit, the interface used for communications with Philae, on the surface. Rosetta is also now being prepared for the end of its mission, when it will crash into the comet on September 30th, taking increasingly detailed images of the comet's surface as it makes its final approach. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, Minnie interviews Dr. Betsy Mills about her ALMA observations of the centre of the Milky Way. Hi everyone, this is Minnie and I'm incredibly excited to be sitting opposite Dr. Betsy Mills here today, who's going to tell us a little bit about her amazing work on the Milky Way. Do you want to say hi, Betsy? Hi everyone! So Betsy, you and I met when we were both postdocs at NRAO in Socorro, Would you like to just give us a brief introduction of who you are, where you are now, and what you're currently doing? Right now, I'm a bit of a world traveler. So normally, I'm based as a postdoc. So I finished my PhD in 2013. And so right now, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Arizona. I'm actually spending the summer in Heidelberg, Germany. And that means that I was close enough to come up here to Manchester and Jodrell Bank to see Minnie. And then in August, I'll actually be moving to start as a professor at San Jose State. That's so exciting, Professor Mills. So Betsy didn't say this, but she's actually a Jansky Fellow right now, which is one of the prestigious postdocs offered by NRAO. So Betsy leads her own research program in the Milky Way. So Betsy, you just gave a fantastic talk, our lunch meeting, just now on the Milky Way. And afterwards, everybody was like, well, that's really cool. So you've got some super high-resolution images of the Milky Way. I didn't realize that we knew so little about the center of our galaxy. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so actually the center of our galaxy is a very difficult region to observe. So, of course, we live inside of our galaxy, and it's shaped a little bit for our older listeners like a compact disc. Um, so it's actually very, very thin is that like an MP3? very large. I don't understand. A little bit different shaped. <laughs> and so we live inside of this pancake, basically. And so 
so to look toward the center of the pancake, you have to look through a whole lot of pancake. In this case, you have to look through a lot of gas and a lot of dust, and that can block our view as we look toward the center of our galaxy. It sounds like a dirty pancake. <laughs> it's not the cleanest, but we're interested in what's in the very center. And so, radio wavelengths and millimeter wavelengths, like Alma uses, can actually help us see through all of that. So it actually becomes almost invisible. So you can see right to the center where there's, for example, a very, very big, supermassive black hole. It weighs more than a million times as much as our sun, and it's really tiny. And one of the things we want to understand, because it's very small in its actual size, but of course it contains a lot of mass. We want to understand how it actually grows. So, how do you actually get gas from the rest of our galaxy down onto this tiny central object that gets bigger and bigger? So, it's a lot of mass, a million times the mass of the sun, in a really, really small area. Yes. That's insane. And how do you put lots of stuff on it? And how do you see down to there? So, you're looking at wavelengths. You said with Alma, which is the Atacama Large. Atacama Large, large millimeter, millimeter Array. Array. I should know that. <laughs> and so you're using wavelengths of, you know, a fraction of a millimeter up to a few centimeters. Yeah, and so for me, so I'm actually looking at some of the closest gas and dust to that black hole. But in this case, close actually means uh, about as far away from the black hole as we are from Alpha Centauri. So about as far away as the nearest star. And that actually is really close when you're talking about something that's this big and is surrounded by a lot of really massive O stars and giant stars that are very hot. And all of this is giving off lots of UV light, right? Like the kind that burns our skin and it's giving off lots of x-rays. And so it's this really extreme environment for this gas to be sort of heated and also tugged on by the gravity of the black hole. Wow, that's so cool. And you had a really cool image in your talk where you were looking at something like a fraction of a parsec, you said, within a light year. And you can see the trails of the stars actually not their trails, their orbits being affected by the pull of the big black hole. Yeah, so one of the ways that we actually know that this black hole is as big as it is, is we can actually see, and this is using now infrared telescopes like right. Keck, for example, you can actually get so close to the black hole that you can see a star going around the black hole, and you can see it move around with an orbital period of something like 10 years. And so you can actually measure the orbit of this star, and based on how fast it goes and how far away it is from the black hole, you can figure out how much the black hole weighs. It's very much like how we can use our own Earth and say that we go around in a year and we're about an astronomical unit away from it and actually measure how much our sun weighs. That is really cool. So you talked about the fact that prior to ALMA or prior to the high-resolution data that we have now, we had fairly low-resolution data from single-dish telescopes. And then you personally got some brand new ALMA data. You said it was 100 times better resolution than... We're doing a lot, lot better. Yeah, so we used to be able to look at this with single-dish telescopes with maybe 30 arc-second resolution. And now we're getting down to a fraction, maybe even a half of an arc-second resolution. And that's a really big deal when something is as far away as the center of our galaxy is. So it's about 30,000 light years, or about 8 kiloparsecs away from us. And so that means that even with the resolution that we have, if you're looking at something that's maybe 30 arc seconds across, 
that's just a parsec in size. So again, in the center of our galaxy, inside of a parsec, you can cram in a black hole, you can cram in hundreds of thousands of stars, you can cram in thousands of solar masses worth of gas. And if you actually want to distinguish between all of this and where the gas is relative to the stars in the black hole, you really need much, much higher resolution like ALMA can provide. So we're getting down into sort of a hundredth of a hundredth of a parsec resolution. And we can actually start seeing these individual clumps of gas as they go around the black hole, gas that might eventually fall into the black hole or might form stars there. That's so cool. So somebody asked you in the talk, how do you know that these stars are formed right near the black hole as opposed to being thrown in or captured gravitationally? So there's a big mystery because the stars that people use to measure the mass of the black hole, these are all actually fairly young stars. And you have to take this in terms of astronomical terms. So if you said that you or I were very old, right, we might be, <laughs> you know, getting up into our 40s or 50s. But for here, a we're young... We're really not. <laughs> we're, we're young. We're young, like these stars. But these stars, being young as a star means that you might only be a few million years old right? Compared to, say, maybe the billions of years that a star like our sun has lived, which is getting a little bit old. So, so our sun's, what, five billion Yeah, our sun old? is maybe four and a half, five billion years old. And so these are only a few okay. million years old. So wow. they formed much, much earlier. And so the thing is, one of the things that we don't understand is how they got there, right? right? Because you're so close to this black hole, it has such strong gravity that it should be pulling very hard. So as a gas cloud tries to collapse and get smaller, at the same time it would be pulled farther apart by the black hole. So you either need a lot of gas crammed into a very, very small region, or possibly you have to say maybe these stars were born somewhere else and came closer in. But we think that's really unlikely because of how young they are. So even though a million years seems like a very long time to us, actually it would be very surprising to get sort of hundreds and thousands of stars that young that close to the black hole in such a short amount of time. So what have your new BLA and ALMA observations told you about how these stars formed or where they came from? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting about our observations is we have, again, for the first time, some very, very sensitive and very high-resolution measurements of the molecular gas. And this is the gas that will form the next generation of stars. And so we see a couple things there. One is that there isn't any gas as close to the black hole as we see those very young stars that trace the orbits around the black hole. There's no gas there? Yeah, so the stars are still there, but they formed a million years ago, and there's none of that gas still left there. So we've finished making stars. We've finished making stars there, and it doesn't look like there's any more gas to make new stars there yet. So all oh. of the gas that we see is maybe 10 or 100 times further away from the black hole than those stars are. And one of the other things we see about that gas is even though it's further from the black hole and the tug of the black hole is less, it's still not quite enough gas to form stars where it is right now. So it seems like all of this gas is sort of in a, a holding pattern right now, and it's waiting to maybe build up enough gas, and for that gas to be close enough together and dense enough to actually form new stars there for the future. That's really, really cool. And you also talked a lot about the densities required and your observations of CO carbon monoxide, don't trace the densest gases? So we have to look at a lot of different tracers, especially because this is such an extreme environment and there's so much going on that there might be x-rays, 
there might be cosmic rays, which are also like really high energy, but now instead of throwing an electron or a photon around, you're throwing around like a proton, like a big massive particle, but really, really fast. <laughs> so you, ha you have all this crazy high energy stuff there, and that can really affect the gas and the chemistry. And it can mean that some molecules might be destroyed by the x-rays, while as some might actually be enhanced by them. And so to get a sense of what the gas is doing, you actually need to look at a number of different molecules. So some molecules like CO, for example, live in lower density gas. Right. How and many different molecules are you able to trace with your data? So with our data, we're able to see about almost 30 different molecules wow. in the gas around the black hole. And they range in complexity from as simple as something like CO right. to something that might have seven atoms and be a lot of different carbon molecules strung together. We call that a carbon chain molecule. Wow. Yeah, for my own work, the only spectral line I'm familiar with at the radio regime is H1, 21 centimeter line. <laughs> so I like, to, I like to say that the gas I look at in the galactic center is gas that's usually smelly or poisonous or both. So I look at a lot of things like ammonia and hydrogen cyanide. Sounds like a fun place. And they're very good, yeah, to measure what's going on in the gas. But they're not anything that you would necessarily want in your kitchen or your backyard. <laughs> so you can measure, what, temperatures, densities? So using these molecules, we can tell a lot, actually, about what the gas is doing. So we're not just looking at these molecules to figure out where they are, right. we're actually looking at the molecules to tell us about the gas that they are interacting with. Oh. So one of the big problems that we have in astronomy is the number one thing that's in space that was made by the Big Bang is hydrogen. And so most of the molecular gas in our galaxy is very simple. It's two hydrogen atoms stuck together. So we right. call that H2. And the real problem is, is that the special properties of this molecule, and I'm just going to sort of allude to quantum mechanics here very generally, mean that it's invisible to us when it's cold. It oh. really just doesn't give off light in a way that we can detect right. to tell that it's there. And so we have to use other molecules to tell us what this gas is doing. And so we might use, for example, a molecule that's very lightweight, like ammonia or CO, and as it bumps against the H2 molecules, it will actually very quickly come to the same temperature as those molecules. So it's just like sticking a thermometer in your mouth or in a glass of water. We use these molecules like a thermometer to tell us what's the temperature of the H2. Okay. And something like CO or HCN will also, as it bumps against these molecules, that's how it gets its energy. Right. So the more times it bumps against molecules, the more energy it has. And that also means, likely, the way that you increase the chance it's going to bump against another molecule is that the molecules are closer together, that they're denser. Right. So what is the temperature of the environment near the black hole? It's actually Mercury. very extreme. So, and, and this is another thing where... You have to say that it's extreme for astronomers, right? <laughs> so for molecular gas that's cold, right, normally out in space, it might be something like 10 Kelvin, right? That's very cold. That's, that's quite cold, yes. Minus so, 263 So room Celsius? temperature here is about 300 Kelvin. So... I am looking at gas that's 200 Kelvin, and that's actually quite hot for gas that's in space, in the cold darkness of space. Right? But I'd still want to wear a jacket. Stars. Yeah. <laughs> so even though it's much colder than anything we would have on Earth, out in space, that's pretty hot. 
That's insane. I mean, that's just one black hole heating up this giant area. Well, it's one black hole and thousands of stars. That so the thing true. about the center of our galaxy is the number of stars and the concentration of stars increases as you go to the center. So as you get to the very center, you have one of the highest concentrations of stars in our galaxy. And that's just because of the black hole? Or? Well, we're not actually sure about this. It's something that we see in general in centers of galaxies, that most galaxies as big as ours have a black hole in the center. Right. And many galaxies also have what we call a nuclear star cluster in the center, which is something like a globular cluster, so millions of stars, very old. The center of that globular cluster in the center of our galaxy is a black hole. And so we see this in our galaxy. There are a few galaxies, for example, like our neighbor M33, that has a nuclear star cluster but no black hole. So it's not entirely clear whether they're forming in the same way or through slightly different processes. Right, so that's always bothered me because, as regular listeners know, there's obviously some correlation with the growth of the galaxy and the growth of the black hole, but the black holes are really, really small, and the sphere of influence isn't that big. So how does... I mean, the big bulge, I suppose, you've got things spinning up, and it just... Galaxies make no sense to me. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah, so the gas that I'm actually talking about when I mentioned the circumnuclear disk of right. gas around the black hole, even at its distance of being about three or four light years away from the black hole... Which is really close. Which is really close. That's actually already far enough that it's feeling basically equal or even more of the gravity coming from the stars around the black hole than just from the black hole itself. Wow, that's really neat. I know you use a lot of ALMA data, but you've also combined this with VLA data, with data from other telescopes. Why do you need data from all these different instruments? So I like to get data from as many places as I possibly <laughs> can to figure out what's going on in these regions. And partly that's because you're really limited, as I said, when you look toward the center of the galaxy, because wavelengths like optical wavelengths, like we would normally see with our eyes, ultraviolet wavelengths, you just can't see those at all because right. it's totally blocked by the gas and dust. Right. So if you want to understand sort of the full picture and the full cycle of how gas turns to stars and those stars then influence, they heat and ionize that gas, you really need a lot of different wavelengths to probe these components that might vary, for example, the molecular gas might be anywhere from 50 to 200 Kelvin, whereas the stars are up at 10,000 Kelvin or hotter. And so you really need very different wavelengths to probe this wide range of temperatures of all of these different stages. Right, so for us to build up a comprehensive picture, I mean, getting multi-wavelength data is absolutely imperative. And that's also true for my own research in the extragalactic universe. So Betsy, tell me one recent amazing Milky Way discovery that our listeners might not know about. I actually tend to, this is a little bit ironic, but I actually tend to get very excited about things that are actually a little bit outside of my field of research, especially things related to exoplanets. So I'm actually one of a type of astronomer that's married to another astronomer. <laughs> and so this problem, we often call this in the field the two-body problem, of actually trying for both of us to find jobs and make it as astronomers. And so my husband studies exoplanets, and this is something that I love to hear about and I love to talk to other people about because it's so fascinating to actually be thinking of trying to get closer to find worlds that are like our own right. and whether or not they have atmospheres. I must say I've never given a public talk without somebody asking me about aliens <laughs> or inhabitable planets. For me it's a little easier because once I mention black hole, that's obviously the question magnet. Right. That's what people will go to. <laughs> but I'm still 
fabulously excited by the star that they found with the Kepler mission, which is looking at the brightness of stars to see dips that might come from planets. Right. The star that has such funny dips in it where they think that it might be surrounded by a cloud of comets. Really? I haven't been paying attention to this. Yeah, so it's been a number of months back, but people are still, I think, almost as mystified as they were in the beginning, where they see this star, and the brightness of the star is changing by a large amount in very random ways. So you might expect the brightness of a star to change somewhat in a very periodic way if there's a planet going around it. For example, and as Earth goes around the sun, every year someone looking at it would see a dip as the sun got a little bit dimmer because the Earth went across it. We can predict the transits. Like in May, we saw the Mercury transit, and we know exactly when the next Mercury transit's going to be. But here, for example, you see something where a huge amount of the light gets blocked out, and so that suggests something that's actually covering a large fraction of the star. And it's doing it in this very, very random way. And so the best explanation explanation scientifically might be a cloud of comets, although it's very... Cloud of comets. Well, it's very curious, <laughs> right? Because you would think if it was close enough in, you would see the hot dust from the dust being right. heated by the star. But the thing that got everyone excited is that one of the authors sort of cheekily said that you could not rule out alien megastructures as causing, <laughs> as causing this sort of, these sort of changes in brightness, and maybe this is actually aliens moving the comets around. I think it's sort of fun in our profession that so much is so well understood that it's very rare that we have things where we're just so baffled that we could appeal to something like this, right? That's awesome. And for me, I'm that's that's part of the the fun of science is saying, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but here's one time where we're so confused that we can't even rule out aliens. That's really <laughs> cool. So Betsy, I also know that you have an interest in increasing the broader participation from underrepresented groups. Did you want to talk a little bit about the work you do then? Yeah. Yeah, so this is something that I think is incredibly valuable, and this is something that I feel very personally that, you know, experiences that I think many can relate to, you know, that I've had even just as a woman in the field, already can make daily life a little bit hard, or make things a little bit more difficult to do the science that I love. Absolutely. I mean, I need to worry about what I'm wearing to work, and certainly when I discuss this with my male colleagues, they don't have as much of a problem. But women are actually getting decently well represented. Right. But the problem is that's mostly white women, right? So when you look at it, the fraction of women being represented, for example, at a PhD level or at a faculty level has been increasing. So it's up to, I think, around 40% in the U.S. um, at the grad school level. But the thing is, the same increases haven't been made for women of color. And the same increases really haven't been made for people of color. And when you look at the numbers, it's very disheartening. I think in astronomy, there's often this game that we like to play to feel good where we say, oh, well, our representation of women is better than physics or engineering or computer science. But when you look at the representation of people coming from minority and minoritized groups, it's actually quite poor compared to these other fields. And I think it's really something that we as all astronomers have to step back and look at this and ask what actions are we taking that have an effect on this? And what can we do to make this better? By talking to the students who are here, by listening to the voices of students and people in in these minoritized and underserved groups and asking what can be improved. So I'm very excited that I'm going to be teaching at a school that's a Hispanic-serving institution where there's a lot of momentum underway to really work with students and really reach out to students coming from backgrounds where there's a larger fraction of students who are Hispanic, who are Black... And, you know, actually being able to work and give these students the preparation to succeed in a field that they love. 
That's fantastic. So when you and I were in Socorro in 2014, there was a program called the National Astronomy Consortium that started national for the U.S., and I know you continued with this program for the following two years. I don't know if you were involved. Yeah, in so this is something that I led for a couple of summers. And this was fun because I had some of the most talented students I worked with. They're truly amazing, right? They're students who inspire me every day. And I had a lot of students, a lot of uh, Latina students and Latino and African-American students, uh, black students. And we worked with them. So they had a research experience over the summer. So they come in and they do research with us for 10 weeks. And then one of the unique features of this program is that we have weekly meetings that don't just discuss research, but also discuss what's going on personally in the field, right? What are barriers that you might be encountering, safe space to talk about things that one is feeling and experiencing, getting knowledge and tools to sort of keep going and overcome these things like imposter syndrome, things like stereotype threat that can really sort of preferentially hurt and discriminate against people coming from certain backgrounds. And so then the other thing that's very unique is that we continue to keep in touch with and work with the students after the summer is over. So it's not just saying, hey, you know, come here, you're going to have this great summer, you're going to do research, and after the 10 weeks is up, you're back on your own. But we're actually saying we're continuing to be resources where we keep in touch with students, we keep meeting with students, we keep on giving sort of advice and research and support, not just from us, but from their peers also. So building this really strong peer group so that you have people that you can turn to who are going through the same experiences that you are and you have a network right to oh, help you succeed that sounds fantastic so the program i know in socorro at least started in 2014 so how are those students doing they're doing really great, so I'm really, Fantastic. really proud of them. So I believe all of the students now are getting into a program where they will get a master's or a PhD. Awesome. And so they're all dealing with moving further on in their career and getting to be better and better astronomers. And they're all over the U.S., so we have students who are in New Mexico and Tennessee at Vanderbilt. We have students who are at... Virginia and in Los Angeles at My Cal State student, LA. I think ended up in Arizona doing medical physics. Yeah, well, it's so. great. I mean, the whole point of this program, too, is, you know, obviously we want to increase the representation for right. the people that you're bringing in, for people who are coming from minoritized backgrounds. What I did want to say was I'd like to share this anecdote. So when I started my PhD, I was a bit of a skeptic, really. I was, I thought everything should be merit-based. We should all work hard to end up where we are. And my mentors and my supervisors were like, no, you have to understand that the baseline isn't fair. And there have been many steps in the process that are, be it conscious or unconscious, but biased against certain groups of people. And the example that was given to us was there was this female professor who I respect very much. And I didn't realize she'd only gotten a permanent position very recently at that point. And she said when she was a PhD student, of order ed two decades ago, she was told, yeah, fine, at your level, at the PhD level, we're doing really well. It's, you know, 40, 60, close to 50, 50. But obviously you look at the professor level and there are very few female professors at the really up high up level. And they said, but that's okay. Your generation's going to change that. And that was 20 years ago and it hasn't changed. If you look at the breakdown now, as Betsy said, at the sort of undergraduate postgrad level, it's close to 50-50, but certainly at the professor level, it's very, very different. And 
I'm really, really glad to know that there are people out there working on this and caring about it, being mindful that this is something we should be aware of. And I think it's really important to remember that this is for everyone, right? Absolutely. By making everything better and more welcoming and more inclusive of people from all backgrounds, so whether that's race, whether that's sexuality, whether that's disability, you really are making an environment that's better for everyone to work in. And you're also bringing in talent that we're just ignoring right now. And that to me is the terrifying thing. If we are, as astronomers, really only pulling from just one pool of people, that's a huge fraction of society, of people who can bring these really valuable creative perspectives, of people who can reach out to the next generation, whether it's wonderful and amazing people who can reach out to the public, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, whether it's like I have a brilliant friend, Chanda Sue Prescott-Weinstein, who is an amazing dark matter researcher, right, and is researching, right, the particles that make up dark matter. I mean, these are voices that are so needed, right? And it's terrifying to think about buildings sort of a field where we're excluding these people. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Betsy, for this awesome interview. I had a lot of fun, and thank you very much. Thank you, Minnie. Thanks for that, Minnie. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we couldn't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Okay, so I found an interesting story here about observations of snow in space. So, young stars are often surrounded by disks of gas and dust known as protoplanetary disks. And as the name would suggest, this is where planets eventually form from. For a star like the Sun, temperatures up to a radius of about three astronomical units, so that's three times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, are great enough to keep water in a kind of in a gaseous phase. But beyond that, water can be found as ice. It's, uh, there's no liquid phase because the pressure is just too low. The boundary between these gas and ice phases are known, is known as the snow line. Um, and this isn't something we've ever been able to see observationally before generally because three astronomical units in the scale of space is tiny and it's, not, it's just too difficult to see. However, something unusual is going on for a particular star, V883 Orionis, which allows us to see the snow line. The star's recently dramatically increased in brightness as a large amount of material from the protoplanetary disk has fallen onto its surface. So this star is only about 30% times more massive than the Sun, but due to this recent outburst, it's increased to a luminosity, or total energy output, 400 times the sun's luminosity. This has also increased the temperature of the star, and this has pushed the snow line outwards. So instead of being at 3 astronomical units, it's now at 40 astronomical units, and this is comparable to the distance between Pluto and the sun. At this radius, using our best instruments, the snow line is just about visible. So Lucas Cieza and his team have used ALMA to make our first ever observation of this snow line. This was a surprise to the team, because it's not something they were actually looking for. They were looking for ring shapes in the disk, which is a sign of planet formation. These observations are expected to improve our models of planet formation. It might seem strange to think about snow orbiting a star, but it seems to be crucial to how planets form. It's believed that this snow helps dust coagulate into more massive objects more quickly, allowing gas giants to form in in these snowy regions, as they can more readily increase in mass and grab the remaining gas in the disk before the star can either accrete it or ionise it. In regions where water is only available in gaseous form, it's more difficult for the dust to coagulate and you end up with smaller planets such as the Earth. Additionally, this, these observations will improve our understanding of the impact of stellar outbursts on planet formation, and these are thought to be very common for forming stars. So, um, yeah, hopefully it's a um, very useful observation there. Mm. So will things settle down and there'll eventually be a, a habitable zone where water can exist as a liquid, or will it always stay as a, 
a hard line between gas and ice. So the fact we have water as a liquid on Earth isn't... It's to do with the, with the temperature, but the pressure is more important here for liquid water. So I don't know the exact limit, but if you if you even take room temperature water and reduce it to a certain low pressure, it will immediately vaporise. Yeah. I was just wondering about its implications for the Drake equation, because if we can have... if we can. Uh, identify that a certain proportion of stars do this and that there is a hard line between Mm. gas and ice and there is no habitable zone then if we can factor that into the Drake equation you might be able to optimise one of the parameters that says how many stars are likely to go on to form uh, planets that are potentially suitable for life. I'm sure this this, uh, this star will have a habitable zone but um, probably within the region where the water would be gaseous Mm. but yeah I don't think it's... um, I don't think you could have liquid water just floating around in space. That's just not, yeah. not possible. You basically yeah. need to be in the habitable zone, so with gaseous water, at the temperature for gaseous water, and then also have an atmosphere to yeah. provide the pressure. Yeah, so once so. the planet's formed and there's an once atmosphere, the formed, then we can get pressure yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, on to me. I've just got three small things to talk about. Firstly, our survey is now closed. Thanks very much to everyone that filled that in. We had some really useful responses from just over 200 people, which is slightly less than the number we had filling in the first survey. Um, what we're going to do with this information is hopefully write a paper on your listening habits and our web statistics. Um, and we also, some of you also gave us your email address um, so that we could give a special prize to one lucky winner and we'll be announcing who that lucky winner is in the next episode. Any word on what the super special prize is? Yeah, um, it's not a secret. I'm sure we can we can say what that is. Um, so you may remember from the last episode I interviewed Sir Francis Graham Smith about his new book, Eyes on the Skies, which is a, a, a comprehensive overview of the sky at all wavelengths and how telescopes operate in each of those bands. He's kindly donated us a copy of his book. He signed it, um, and it will be signed by every member of the Jodcast team. So we'll be sending that out to uh, a lucky winner. Nice. Ooh. Just to devalue his signature a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Dilute his celebrity status. <laughs> um, we'll sign it at the back. He can have the front page. In other news, you may remember from our December Extra edition, Simon Ruckyard uh, talked to us about the three Ps, porridge, pulsars and polarisation three things he's very much an expert in. He uh, graduated this Friday, so he's now officially Dr. Simon Ruckyard. Um, The reason that's notable, he's got quite an unusual title. He is the world porridge-making champion um, through 2015 through 2016. He'll be defending his title this coming October. Um, So uh, congratulations to him. If you want to see a picture of him in all his graduation garb, go along to our Facebook page and you'll be able to see him graduating uh, holding the prized golden spurtle, which is the uh, winning trophy. A spurtle? A spurtle. It's a special stick used to stir porridge. It's oh. like a wooden spoon, but without the spoon. I see. It's just a wooden stick. It allows you to get into the corners of the pan a little bit better than a, uh, a spoon would. Has anyone from the Jodcast tried his porridge? He's actually he's coming to Jodrell Bank next month sometime, and he's going to make... Um, world champion porridge for us all. Nice. So some of us in the Pulsar group will get to try it, yeah. So You'll have to report back. I will, certainly. <laughs> um, another little housekeeping thing. You may remember our April Fool uh, edition. George placed a tiny thing in there, which was a strange recording. That recording was done by ex-Jodrellite Liz Guzman. Um, one of you has got in touch with us on Twitter and has correctly identified it as a number station. 
if you don't know what a number station is, um, they're quite strange. They're sort of shortwave radio stations that seem to read out random series of numbers, uh, little snippets of sort of monophonic music, uh, voices, Morse code. Um, they're weird, incredibly weird. And they're thought to be used to communicate with intelligence officers in other countries. Um, most of the time you just hear a sort of recurrent beeping sound, which is, I guess, used to hold that channel right. so that nobody else comes along and tries to broadcast there. Mm. Um, but occasionally those transmissions are inter interrupted by people just reading out a series of numbers or doing something otherwise strange. And they're actually really creepy. I've listened to a couple of them. The most famous one is called UVB-76, uh, which has been broadcast from Russia and has been going for a very long time. Mm. Um, and it is just a series of um, short pulses of sound but occasionally, every few years or every few months, somebody comes in and reads a list of names out and then it goes back for years on end to just these beeps again. Are they recognisable names? Are they like world leaders? or uh, They're probably just... Um, code names. Code names, like phonetic. Yeah. So, like the phonetic right. alphabet. So they're just reading these strange oh, things wow. out. It's incredibly unsettling to listen to these things. There's one, the most famous one, I think is called uh, the Lincoln Chipocha, uh, which is thought to be used by the British Intelligence Service. Uh, it's been broadcast from Cyprus. I think it stopped broadcasting in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and it started off as a little folk song, a British folk song called The Lincoln Chipotle. And it's a really sort of strange rendition of that being played in sort of single tones. And then a list of numbers, five groups of numbers, five groups of five numbers, and then it goes back to... Bizarre. The weird music. That is bizarre. Months. It's really strange. They're quite creepy. Um, I recommend. We'll play some links into the show notes so you can go and listen to. There's loads yeah. of them. Absolutely loads of them. Some still broadcasting. Some not. Right. Uh, and what George did. George knows way more about this than me. Um, I'm slowly learning more and more and listening to more of them. What George did is put uh, a number station, his own recording of one, in the Jodcast April Fool's edition. Um, he won't tell any of us what it means. Uh, even the music is something to decode um, and there's a series of numbers and he's being very quiet about it and isn't revealing right. it to anybody. So if somebody can listen to that and decode it and tell us what it is, because he won't, no matter how much we nag him. <laughs> um, and I wasted several days of my PhD <laughs> trying to decode this, even putting the uh, the music to one of those sort of music recognition software things yeah, and it, yeah. it yielded nothing. Um, oh, it's like that. Did you ever see that internet phenomenon of Marble Hornets? No. It was a bizarre... It was supposed to be a film studies project, and it sort of turned out to be like a Slenderman-style thing, which is like a sort of internet folk tale about a, a man who will only appear on camera, right? You yeah. don't see him in real life. Um, but they had uh, a sort of alternate reality game thing going alongside it, where they there was a channel that was affiliated with them in some way that would reveal clues about what was really going on, but it was in the, this sort of form of decoded... Yeah. of encoded video and audio. Uh, they were incredibly creepy to listen to and watch. Right. And it inspired this like massive community yeah. of people online who were all dedicated to cracking them as fast as they could. Wow, yeah. okay. So yeah. we, we need to get those guys on board. Get yeah, definitely. They might be able to <laughs> give us a bit more of an idea. But yeah, yeah. they are creepy. Um, things like that are creepy. And it's particularly creepy for me because I've just started re-watching Lost. Um, so it's... Why would you do that to yourself? Because I didn't understand it the first time round, and I don't really understand it this time round either. So, yeah, if you can go back and listen to the April Fool's episode, we'll place a link to it um, and give you the t exact time of where it's in the show. Go and listen to the number station that George made, and if you've any ideas, please get in touch. And actually, George is offering some Alma 
freebies to anybody who guesses correctly what it is. So get to work. Nice. Oh man, that's that's good. That's much more exciting than uh, than my odds and ends. Yours is topical. Uh, it is topical. It's very topical. So you're probably sick to death of hearing about Pokemon Go already. Uh, but in case you don't know what it is, it's the a new mobile game from Nintendo uh, and some of the companies that are affiliated with them, where you can walk around and virtual Pokemon from the original 150, which are the ones that my generation will remember the best will pop up around you and you can catch them and collect them and then battle them and stuff. Uh, it's inspired people to go crazy. There, there was a video of people in uh, Central Park in New York where someone was like, oh, there's a Charizard over there, and there was literally a stampede of people. It was about 50 people all running over. Wow. Uh, so it, this is it's huge. Um, and it has recently crossed paths with astronomy a little bit. So Reddit user Lil Viper, I think is how you're going to pronounce that. Uh, I think he's a French guy. Um, he runs an open-air astronomy society, and he capitalised on Pokemon Go's popularity by using an item called a lure, or a lure if you're posh, to attract Pokemon to the beach where he set up his telescope. Um, and he was using his telescope to look at Saturn. So there were loads of Pokemon uh, in this game, on this beach where he'd set up and players can see that there are lots of Pokemon in that area so they all flocked to it and then asked him about you know what you're doing with your telescope or whatever so he ended up with over 100 people stopping by exchanging stories about Pokemon Go and uh, looking at Saturn and talking about it and that's inspired other Reddit users um, to do the same thing uh, out in America and he signed off his post with all hail Pokemon the Uniter which I thought was quite nice (laughs) Uh, so yeah, if, you, if you're running any, you know, uh, optical astronomy societies, you've got any Pokestops near you, consider putting a lure on them, get some Pokemon around, and get people interested. In other Jodrell news, the observatory has recently been hosting the Blued Up Festival. Uh, ben Max, were either of you there during the? Oh, I was. Yes. The event you were. Can I was you... there on the Saturday and Sunday, um, bullying people into listening to me talk about pulsars. So you had a stand. Yep, I was on two stands. I was on the Jodrell Bank stand and on the Pulsar Hunters stand. Okay. Um, just basically talking to people about what I do, what the Zooniverse Pulsar Hunters project does, and various other things. Um, I was interviewed for Radio Bristol. Oh, excellent. Claim to fame of the week. Nice. <laughs> um, and that recording has also gone out on another podcast called The Cosmic Shed, uh, which is a Bristol-based podcast, which is very good. I've listened to a few episodes, so if you in the market for a new podcast, head on over to the cosmicshed.com and nice. check them out. Uh, but yeah, it was really good. Uh, the level is broken at the moment. The elevation gears aren't working, so it can move round and round, but it can't move up and down. Um, but on Saturday night, they did actually manage to get the telescope to move down towards the crowd, uh, much to the elation of many people. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really good. It was really chilled. I've never been to a festival, a big festival before. Um, it felt really chilled out and really nice. There was nice. no litter. It was all very civilised. Oh, so it was great, yeah. Was it quite busy then? It was, yeah. It was absolutely heaving. Yeah. Um, and of course, we didn't do any observing over those few weeks, mm. over those few days, sorry, because everybody had their mobile phones taking pictures of the dish and there's no way we we're going to see anything as, as weak as a radio source in that sea of radio light. So yeah. all observations were suspended for those few days. So, But that's not the case now. Jodrell Bank is once again a radio quiet zone. Even if you're looking for Pokemon. Especially if you're looking for Pokemon. (laughs) 
And now on to resident Pokemon master Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for August 2016. Well, we got a somewhat longer period of darkness. We still have, in principle, all of the five major planets visible at some point during the month, as well, of course, one of the two great meteor showers of the year, the Perseids. We'll come back to these a bit later. Well, looking up at the heavens, setting in the west after sunset is the bright star Arcturus in Bootes. But the real star, really, or stars, are looking high in the south, where we have the three stars, Vega in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus, and Altair in Aquila, making up what is called the Summer Triangle. It's one of the most beautiful parts, I think, of the night sky, the other being the area around Orion that we see in winter. If you come upwards from Altair towards Vega, about a third of the way, passing the little constellation of Sagata, the arrow, there's quite a dark part of the Milky Way. It's called the Cygnus Rift. And in that dark part, you might just spot an upside-down coat hanger. It's actually called the coat hanger, or Brocky's Cluster, to be more formal. It's a nice little thing to look at, a little asterism to see. Again with binoculars, if you find Vega, that's the upper right of these three stars, not far away is the star called Epsilon Lyra, or the double-double. With binoculars, or a small telescope, you can see there are two stars there, but if the seeing conditions are good, with perhaps a slightly larger telescope, you can see that each of those two stars is itself a double, hence the name the double-double. Down to the lower left of the Summer Triangle is a very sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. Not very obvious, but it's a nice thing just to spot. Coming over to the left and rising as the night continues is the square of Pegasus. And again, once that's visible, we have a chance of finding the nearest giant galaxy to us, the Andromeda Galaxy. And there are two ways of finding it, actually. You can start at the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus. is a star called Alpha Rats, which actually is Alpha Andromedae. It's not part of Pegasus. You go to the left and up a bit to one bright star, move round a little bit, the same sort of distance to a second bright star, which is actually Beta Andromedae, then turn sharp right, 90 degrees, follow to another fairly bright star, not so far, and the same distance beyond is where you'll find M31, the Andromeda Galaxy, which under dark skies you can just see with your unaided eye. And the other way to find it is, in fact, first of all, to find Cassiopeia, the W-shaped constellation, fairly high up in the sky. If you take the three stars at the lower right, they form a little bit of an arrow. And if you follow that arrow down, that will also bring you to Andromeda. Not a bad number of things to look at. Polaris is high in the north, of course. And on the far side of Polaris from Cassiopeia are the stars Dubhe and Merek, the pointers in part of the Ursa Major constellation that, of course, we call the Plough. And the Americans call it the Big Dipper which actually is a ladle. It's not, I used to think it was one of these fairground rides, but it's actually, it's a ladle. If you look at the three stars that make up the handle of the ladle or the plough, then the central one is called Mizar. And Alcor 
is its outrider. And you look at it with binoculars, you'll see it's a double star. But with a telescope, you'll see that Mizar is itself a double star. So there's three stars visible. And with a bit of luck, you'll see a fourth rather reddish star making up a sort of rather flat triangle. It's a nice little thing to look at. So that's a good star. Well, as I said, we have all of the planets normally visible available to us this month. Jupiter can be seen low above the western horizon after sunset, though gradually it's sinking into the sun's glare. However, as it does so, it makes some nice groupings with the crescent moon, Mercury and Venus, as we'll see in the highlights. It remains at magnitude minus 1.7 throughout August, whilst its angular diameter reduces slightly from 32 to 30.9 arc seconds. The low elevation will obviously hinder our view, but a small telescope should still show its equatorial bands and the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Now, Saturn has its rings as nearly open as they can be and still makes a great sight through a small telescope, even though its elevation never gets above about 20 degrees. It dims slightly from magnitude plus 0.3 to plus 0.5 during August, whilst its angular size falls slightly, 17.5 to 16.7 arc seconds. Saturn is transiting, that's passing due south, at sunset, and so can be seen low in the southwestern sky during the evening. With a small telescope, one should also be able to spot its largest moon, Titan. As described in the highlights, towards the end of the month, Saturn, Mars and Antares make a close grouping. Now Mercury. Mercury reaches greatest elongation from the Sun. That means it's at the greatest angular separation from the Sun on August the 16th. But sadly, never gets that high above the horizon in the western sky. Its magnitude falls from minus 0.2 to plus 1.1, whilst the angular size is actually increasing from 6 to 9.5 arc seconds. Mars. As August begins, Mars, shining at magnitude minus 0.8, again, like Saturn, transits around sunset, and again will be seen in the southwestern sky during the evening, as it moves first from Libra into Scorpius, and then towards the end of the month into Ophiuchus. Its magnitude drops from minus 0.8 to minus 0.3 during the month, as its angular size falls from 13 to 10.5 arc seconds. Sadly, its low elevation will hinder our view, but it may still be possible to see some features on the surface with a small telescope if the seeing is good. And finally, Venus. Venus can be seen very low in the western sky after sunset, so despite its brilliant magnitude of minus 3.8, will still be hard to spot. Its angular diameter increases from 10.1 to 10.9 arc seconds during the month. On the 1st of August, it sets about 45 minutes after the sun, lying very close to the star Regulus in Leo. An interesting but difficult observation due to its very low elevation on the 27th of August will find it less than half a degree away from Jupiter as they both fall into the sun's glare and beyond our sight. What about the highlights? Well, in the night sky page, just put in night sky Jodrell Bank to find it, I've given some details about finding the globular cluster in Hercules and the double-double in Lyra, and also some details as to how to find and observe Neptune 
with a small telescope. It's at its best, in fact, the latter part of this month and the beginning of September. With a magnitude of plus 7.9, Neptune, even though its disk of just 3.7 arc seconds across, is easily spotted in binoculars as a darkish blue object. It actually rises to an elevation of about 27 degrees when due south. So given a telescope of 8 inches or greater diameter, and what they call a dark transparent night, it should even be possible to spot its moon Triton. And I must admit, I've never done that, and that's one of my objectives around the end of the month. I shall actually be in the very southern tip of Ireland, way away from any lights at a star party. So should it be clear, I ought to be able to do that. At the very beginning of the month, given a clear sky and a very low western horizon, you need to be fairly high up to have a very good horizon, you may be able to spot a line of Jupiter, Mercury and Venus, along with Regulus in Leo. Binoculars might well be needed, but please don't use them until the sun has set. On the 5th of August, after sunset, Jupiter, again low above the horizon, lies above and not far from a thin, waxing crescent moon. You might just spot Earthshine. That's the light reflected from clouds on the Earth, making the part of the moon that's not lit by the sun just visible. Now, a major highlight of August is always the Perseid meteor shower. And basically, the peak of the shower is probably on the morning of the 12th. So it is actually fairly broad. It's worth looking, in fact, certainly on the 11th, 12th and 13th. And best really after midnight. Happily, the moon is at relatively low declination. That means it's not that high in the sky. And it sets around 1am. So really the hours before dawn are going to be best. You've got to get away from as many lights as you can, get well out into the countryside, wrap up warm, and just spend some time looking up towards, not the radiant, which as you might guess is in Perseus, but about 50 degrees away and higher up in the sky. There's some details on a chart given on the night sky page. On August the 23rd, after sunset, Saturn and Mars are not far together and lie above Antares in Scorpius. So looking south-southwest and given a low horizon in this direction, you should be able to spot Saturn, magnitude plus 0.4, lying above Mars, magnitude minus 0.3, and they're both in Ophiuchus, close to Antares in Scorpius. On the 27th of August, after sunset, as I mentioned earlier, Venus and Jupiter come less than half a degree apart. So looking west after sunset with a very low horizon, binoculars might help you spot them together. But again, please don't use binoculars until after the sun has set. And I usually try and mention an object on the moon to look at. And this month I've referred to what's called the straight wall. And the nights of August the 11th and the 25th are best because the Terminator then lies quite close it's not really a wall, but a gentle scarp. But it does look a bit like one. And as Patrick Moore has said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. So it's not a bad month, actually, for observing the heavens. I do wish you have some success. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Magashanu with the night sky where you are. 
Welcome to the Saturn Hemisphere. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu and I will be your storyteller tonight from Space Place at Kasher Observatory. In the Saturn Hemisphere, winter, it's the time when the galactic center goes right all the way up at Zenith. All you have to do from here in Wellington, New Zealand, is to lift up your gaze and it will be right there. From there, if there is a really dark night, you can see the Milky Way Kiwi, which I spoke about in last month's podcast. It is a dark patch at the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, that looks just like a kiwi bird, one of the native birds of New Zealand, and a national icon for us. It is truly remarkable how the kiwi bird in the sky resembles to the one on the Earth. But since you need a really dark sky, I would suggest that the best thing you can do to try spot the Milky Way kiwi, the celestial one, is to start looking for it in long exposed pictures of the center of the galaxy. The only place in New Zealand where I could see it with the naked eye was at Lake Tekapos Earth and Sky. Whereas the Milky Way Kiwi is in the Scorpius Sagittarius region, holding the center of the galaxy on its head just like a crown, the other famous dark patch is the Coalsack near the Southern Cross. The Coalsack is also known as the Flounder, which is the Maori name for it. Again, if you find a truly dark sky, you will see the resemblance. However, talking about naming objects in the sky, the Coalsack is also very appropriate as the dark patch made of interstellar dust holds inside it a jewel box or the Kappa Crucis cluster NGC 4755. This is an open cluster in the constellation Crooks, originally discovered by Nicolas Louis de Lacaille during 1751 to 1752 and named the jewel box by Sir John Herschel. He described its telescopic appearance as a superb piece of fancy jewelry. Those of you who saw it know what I'm talking about. Jewel box is easily visible to the naked eye as a hazy star about one degree southeast of the first magnitude star Beta Crucis. In August, after sunset, the Southern Cross, Crooks, and the two pointers Alpha and Beta Centauri are slowly starting their descent on the South Celestial Carousel, our special part of the sky that is not visible from northern latitudes above 30 degrees. They are midway down the southwest sky, the pointers. They point down and rightward to Crooks, the Southern Cross. Alpha Centauri is the third brightest star and the closest naked eye star neighbor, 4.3 approximately light years away. Beta Centauri, like most of the stars in Crooks, is a blue giant star hundreds of light years away and thousands of times brighter than the sun. There is a part of the sky here in Wellington which seems to rotate around the South Celestial Pole, the extension of the South Pole in the sky, located here at 41 degrees above the horizon. This coincides with Wellington's latitude, 41 degrees south. You can almost make the South Celestial Circle from the two pointers, Alpha and Beta Centauri, the Southern Cross, the Diamond Cross, the False Cross, 
then lower down on the southwestern horizon Canopus, that I call the Cat Star, the second brightest star in the sky, and Achenar, which is easily found if you extend the line from the Southern Cross all the way to the southeastern horizon, that is, if you look after sunset. The South Celestial Circle makes an entire rotation in 23 hours and 56 minutes and just about 4 seconds, which is a sidereal day. This is a time scale that is based on Earth's rate of rotation measured relative to the fixed stars rather than the Sun. The South Celestial Circle is home to the large and small clouds of Magellan, LMC and SMC, that look like two misty patches of light low in the south, easily seen by eye on a dark, moonless night. They are galaxies like our Milky Way, but much smaller. The Large Magellanic Cloud is about 160,000 light-years away. The Small Magellanic Cloud about 200,000 light-years away. My two favorite objects inside the South Celestial Circle are the Globular Cluster 47 Tucane, rival of Omega Centauri, and Tarantula Nebula, a spectacular cloud which is one of the most active starburst regions known in the local group of galaxies. To give you a comparison, Tarantula Nebula is about 160,000 light-years away from us. If it were as close to Earth as the Orion Nebula, the Tarantula Nebula would cast shadows. The South Celestial Circle never ceases to amaze me, and I watch it as it rotates with the seasons and throughout the night when I can. For me, the southern part of the sky is the best, and I am extremely happy that I had the chance to see it, let alone now teach about it. Back to the ecliptic, which is visible from everywhere where people can see the sun and the moon, as it is defined as the path of the sun in the sky, but also as the plane of our solar system, all five naked-eye planets are visible in the evening sky. Mercury, Venus and Jupiter are low in the west and shuffle around through the month. Mars and Saturn are north of overhead near Antares. Venus, the brilliant silver's evening star, sets in the west an hour after the sun at the beginning of the month, extending to nearly two hours by the end. Jupiter, high in the west and golden-colored, sets steadily earlier through the month at 9 p.m. at the start of August and before 8 p.m. at the end. Mercury makes his best evening sky appearance of the year. It is roughly midway between Jupiter and Venus at the beginning of the month. Around the 20th, Mercury will be left of Jupiter but much fainter. It begins to sink back into the twilight at the end of the month. On August 27-28, Jupiter and Venus will be close together, easily included in the same view in a telescope. At the beginning of August, Mars, Saturn and Antares make an isosceles triangle north of the zenith. Mars is the brightest of the three and the same color as Antares. Saturn is cream-colored. Saturn stays put against the background stars. Mars moves steadily eastward. On the 25th, Mars will be 2 degrees, 4 full moons diameters from Antares, making a striking pairing of orange stars. Bright stars are widely scattered in August. 
Vega on the north skyline is balanced by Canopus low in the south. Orange Arcturus is in the northwest. The southern cross, crooks and the pointers are at midway down the southwest sky. The Milky Way spans the sky from northeast to southwest. Canopus, the second brightest star, is near the south skyline at dusk. It swings upward in the southeast sky through the morning hours. On the opposite horizon is Vega, one of the brightest northern stars. It is due north in mid-evening and sets around midnight. Arcturus, Hokulea, the zenith star of Hawaii, is in the northwest at dusk. The fourth brightest star, Arcturus, is currently the brightest in the northern hemisphere. It is 120 times the sun's brightness and 37 light years away. When low in the sky, Arcturus twinkles red and green as the air splits up its orange light. It sets in the northwest around 10 p.m. Antares marks the heart of the scorpion. The scorpion's tail hooks around the zenith like a back-to-front question mark. Antares and the tail make the fish hook of Maui in Maori star lore. The fish hook drags at the time of the year the Milky Way down from the heavens. Antares is a red giant star about 600 light years away and 19,000 times brighter than the sun. Below or right of the Scorpius tail is the teapot made by the brightest stars of Sagittarius. It is upside down in our southern hemisphere view. The Milky Way, its brightest and broadest overhead in Scorpius and Sagittarius. In a dark sky, it can be traced down past the pointers and crooks into the southwest. To the northeast, it passes Altair, meeting the skyline right of Vega. The Milky Way is our edgewise view of the galaxy. The thick hub of the galaxy is about 30,000 light years away from us in Sagittarius. The actual center is hidden by dust clouds in space. The nearer dust cloud appears as gaps and slots in the Milky Way, and we call it the Milky Way Kiwi from here. Binoculars show many clusters of stars and some glowing gas clouds in the Milky Way. According to Karen Pierce, who made an excellent list of binocular objects that you can find on the site astrogeek.com, in Ophiuchus you can find M9, M10, M12, M14, M19 and M6, which provide examples of different concentrations of stars. Also, IC4665, a big but often overlooked open cluster located near Beta Ophiuchi, Sagittarius contains more messier objects than any other constellation. The best way to identify them is to take them one by one. The main stars of Sagittarius, as I said earlier, form the famous teapot asterism. And again, here in Wellington, looks upside down. It is said that for the Nordlings, the brightest part of the Milky Way seems to emerge from the teapot spout like a puff of steam. In Sagittarius, M22, the Great Sagittarius Star Cluster is a very large globular cluster, the best of the constellation's many globulars. M23 is another one of the many clusters in Sagittarius. It has over a hundred stars in an area about the size of the Moon. Lagoon Nebula M8 is visible to the naked eye in dark nights just north of the richest part of the Sagittarius Milky Way. 
Trifid Nebula, M20. It's found only one and a half degrees northwest of the Lagoon Nebula. It is smaller and fainter than other nebulae and may be a bit of a challenge in binoculars, although it's easily seen in a small telescope. Ideal conditions and sharp eyes might detect M21, which is located just half a degree northeast of M20, although it's rather faint by binocular standards. Omega Nebula, M17, also called the Swan, the Horseshoe, or the Chickmark. This is also a nebula that can be seen clearly in binoculars. In Scorpius, Antares, or Rehua in Maori, it's the heart of the scorpion. This is a red giant star about 10,000 times more luminous than the sun, and it's a good binocular object. M4, also in Scorpius, is a globular cluster that in binoculars looks like a fuzzy patch. M6, the butterfly cluster, is a large open cluster of about 50 stars resembling a butterfly. M7, it's another large, bright and open cluster, lying southeast of M6, and it needs to be seen through binoculars to be fully appreciated. NGC 6231, this bright open cluster, lies in a rich region of the Milky Way. It is best surveyed in binoculars or at very low power in a telescope. In the same area of the scorpion's tail are several other binocular visible objects, but I will let you discover these as that region of the sky comes about. And remember that you don't need fancy telescopes to enjoy the night sky, but a pair of good binoculars, a good sky atlas, and lots of hot chocolate. It is winter time here in the southern hemisphere and the nights are crisp but very cold. Keep warm and look up. This concludes our Jodcast for August 2016, marking a full year of Jodcasting for me that I have thoroughly enjoyed. I would like to express my gratitude and my thanks to you for listening to our stories and for all the feedback I received, and I hope that the year coming will bring you even more beautiful storytelling opportunities. We have wonderful observatories all across the Southern Hemisphere, and of course, my favorite of them is at Space Place at Carter Observatory, the host of this podcast from the Southern Hemisphere for many years now. Kia ora! And kia kaha and clear skies from under the best sky of the world as it is right now. Thanks for that, Haritina. And now onto the feedback. So we have some actual physical real post. It's always nice. Yeah, we've got a postcard um, from Simi in Greece, uh, from James Bruce May. And it says, Dear Jodcasters, this week I visited Simi's quaint Naval History Museum, which gave details on how... Simeon sponge divers discovered the wreck containing the Antikythera mechanism, something I knew all about thanks to your interview with Professor Seriadakis. So thanks for that. Also, the skies are beautiful here for stargazing. Keep up the great work. Best wishes, James Bruce May. P.S. Jordan. And the front is a picture of what looks like a nice summery bay with some fishing boats in the foreground. So that's very nice. Thank you very much for that. Lovely. Well... On the emails, we've got this from John Thomas. Sorry to hear you did not receive any messages. I'm sure there are many silent listeners like me just lurking, and that the silence just reflects satisfaction listening to your excellent podcast. Watch out, though. It could be that if one episode starts to get a lot of responses, it's because you've done something we listeners don't like. Thanks for your excellent work over the years. Uh, You've been running. Regards, John Thomas from West Lothian in Scotland. So thanks for that, John. Yeah, I hope people will tell us if we're doing something that they don't like. We have a Facebook post from Philip Lariche. 
Uh, he is surprised to note that the Less Listen survey was in 2010 because he was the winner wow. of the last event. Ah. Yeah. It was a book that was on offer then as well. The beautifully produced book Dark Side of the Universe by Ian Nicholson and signed in the front by the then Jodcasters. He found the book fascinating. Yeah, the book talks about an exciting mission that's soon to be launched called Plank. So obviously... Uh, this, <laughs> that this dates it. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. And he has actually lent that book to an extremely bright young sixth former who visited the university a couple of weeks ago. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Potentially inspired a new person there, so... Uh... Absolutely. We've had quite a few Twitter messages this month. At PhilM44, regarding the April Fool's item, I thought it was a number station like the Lincoln Chipocho. Was I right? Really enjoy the show. Uh, yep, you were, uh, as we've pointed out earlier. So, um, Phil, please help us out by decoding what this number station actually means. Fred Keish tweets, uh, Heard on the Jodcast that some ex-Jodcasters have started a new podcast, so naturally I automatically subscribe. That's seldom serious. Um, that's right, I think we plugged that earlier in the year. Jen Gupta, Matt Perver, Stuart Lowe, David Alt, and Megan Argo have got together to produce a new podcast. I think they're up to episode four now, and it's very good. So um, head on over there and subscribe. Um, he also tweets us again, um, saying, Working my way through back episodes of the Jodcast, one highlight was uh, Matt Taylor talking about Rosetta Data helping with old ground space, ground slash space observatories. Dave Taskis, whose Twitter name is Father Fantaskis uh, from London, um, says, Many congratulations to Dr. Rookyard. Surely his research is fascinating stuff, but could we get a tutorial on porridge making? I will ask him, just for you, Dave. I will make him aware of your interest. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube, on youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. So, thanks to Dr. Betsy Mills for the interview and to Sarah Nakuda for the website write-ups. The editors were Megan Argo, Adam Avison, Monique Henson, Niall McCallum and Haratina Mogashanu. The producer was George Bendo. Until next time, Jod on! on.